Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. I'm Stephen Murins. This episode, Deanna and I are discussing misrepresentation and its consequences. The way our conversation flowed when we were recording was as follows. Deanna and I started by discussing a specific issue within the law of misrepresentation, which is the innocent mistake defense and prior visa refusals, or the failure to disclose them. We then provided an introduction to the law of misrepresentation, and then finally discussed specific issues that arise in its application. Now, in editing this podcast, I rearranged the order of it so that it is, would be easier to follow for people who may not be familiar with the concept of misrepresentation. The episode starts with an overview of what misrepresentation is in the immigration context. We then discuss specific issues that arise in the application of this inadmissibility. And then afterwards, and after Deanna and I you know, concluded the podcast, I then inserted the audio from our discussion about the innocent mistake defense and prior visa refusals. If you're interested in the topic of misrepresentation, you may also want to listen to Borderlines podcast episode 15, where we discussed the New Can Consulting saga and the biggest immigration fraud in Vancouver history. This um, That episode discussed the saga of New Can Consulting and how the Canada Border Services Agency pursued misrepresentation allegations against hundreds, in fact, I believe over a thousand, people primarily in Vancouver for having lied in visa applications. That episode described a wide-scale and blatant examples of misrepresentation. This episode is more an overview of the law of misrepresentation itself and how it applies in other arguably less severe contexts. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. permanent resident or a foreign national is um, inadmissible for misrepresentation for directly or indirectly misrepresenting or withholding material facts relevant to relating to a relevant matter that induces or could induce an error in the administration of this act. So basically, um, if you break that down into its component parts, um, the directly or indirectly means that the the information or the representations can be done either by the applicant by themselves or by any person on behalf of the applicant. So for example, if somebody has retained counsel or a consultant to make representations to the department on themselves, they will be considered responsible for any representations made in their name. And so um, often that is a kind of claim of innocence made that, you know, we had no idea that that these representations were being made, um, but that generally um, has no has no play, has no pull with the department because the provision specifically speaks to the fact that an indirect uh, misrepresentation still uh, holds for uh, for a misrepresentation to uh, to lie with the, the applicant. Um, but it then goes on to say that it has to be a with uh, a misrepresentation of information or a withholding of material facts. So I'm clinging on to the word material, meaning that it's not any facts. So if, for example, you said that your eyes were blue rather than uh, brown, um, the question is whether or not that information is material. And so there's a lot of jurisprudence on this question of materiality, which is um, really whether or not the information is relevant. And really this takes us into the third component of, of the definition of misrepresentation is whether or not the information induces or could induce an error in the administration of the act. And again, this component is is one that is very, very highly litigated because what's clear is that it, it, it doesn't mean that it must have led to an incorrect determination, but rather it just needs to mean that it could have led the decision maker to have made a mistake. So for example, 
if an applicant has said that they were single when in fact that they were married, even if they weren't intending to bring that spouse, for example, the point is that by failing to mention that spouse, they that the officer would not have conducted the right examinations, they would not have asked for a separation agreement, they would have not asked for a death certificate, mm -hmm. things like that. It could conceivably, um, they talk about closing down an avenue of investigation. So yeah, ultimately, the, the standard is, is very low. Yeah, the other classic example of that is not disclosing a dismissed charge. So a dismissed charge typically won't result in someone being inadmissible to Canada. Um, but failing to disclose it could shut down that avenue of inquiry into whether a charge was actually dismissed or if it was convicted. Yeah, pardoned or something like that, any kind yeah. of thing where it's been vacated after the fact. Um, or sometimes, um, uh, you know, just to, to uh, continue the point that, that Steve is making, another very common one is where someone says, well, this was not a felony charge, this was just a misdemeanor, and I was told that it would never form part of my criminal record. Again, the question that's put forward on all the application forms is extremely broad. It asks for, have you ever been convicted of any offense? Um, uh, and so they're asking for the most fulsome possible answer, and they want the determination as to whether or not it amounts to a criminal conviction that has any relevance for criminal admissibility purposes. They want that determination to be left to the department. They just want you to give them the facts and then they wish to be able to make those determinations. Yeah. And do you want to also discuss the consequence of misrepresentation, like why it matters? Sure. Um, the reason that this matters is because if somebody is found inadmissible for misrepresentation, that renders them inadmissible and they would be subject to, um, well, they, they would potentially be, um, be, uh, become subject to a removal order from Canada, and that once that removal order is executed, they would be, be they would remain inadmissible to Canada for a five-year period. So um, it's subject to this ban. And during that period of inadmissibility, they would not be able to enter Canada without special permission in the form of a temporary residence permit or an authorization to return to Canada. Yeah, and so that's you know. Working without authorization in Canada is a one-year ban from entering Canada, showing up at the border with the intent to immigrate rather than just be a visitor is a one-year ban. The exclusion order with, that you get creates yeah, a one-year ban, but yeah. yeah. The uh, lying in an application or not even lying, misstating or withholding, as Deanna mentioned, is a five-year ban. And you also can't apply for permanent residence during that time. The other reason why it's become a topic of frequent discussion and litigation is that the number of instances of IRCC finding misrepresentation has dramatically increased. So the stats that I have are 2015 to 2019 in the temporary resident context, so study permit, visitor, work permit. In 2015, there were 6,673 people determined to be inadmissible for Canada for misrepresentation and those types of applications, by 2019, that had increased to 26,982. So almost a, you know, between a four and a five fold increase. And I would think it's only gone up since. Yeah. And I would say that I mean, I, I fully appreciate that the purpose behind the misrepresentation is, and I'll use the, the department's own lingo, is to protect the integrity of the Canadian immigration uh, administration. And I do recognize that that is a laudable goal, that we don't want people feeling like they can just leave information off of their application in order to achieve their immigration goals. Uh, my personal uh, relationship with how the misrepresentation provision has worked is that it has caused untold anxiety for a huge swath of, of um, intended immigrants. A lot of the time, um, you know, the immigration process is not at all straightforward. The number of forms people that people need to complete, the number of app 
the number of um, guides that you need to read in order to understand how to abide all of the instructions. They're quite complicated. There's a lot of uh, fine print, even with um, even with counsel on board, as we said, just trying to make sure that your client is fully reading all of the application forms and fully appreciating the meaning of everything. There's a lot of unintended mistakes that get made. Um, and it, I always give the example that you know, when I put in my documents to my accountant and they hand me back my tax return and I sign it, um, the idea that I fully understand and I'm reading and appreciate the consequences of every single line of my massive tax return every year. Like I don't yeah. think that most people have that high, high level understanding of what's going in with their tax return. But I think um the hyper vigilance that people are expected to have in terms of their immigration matter is really extreme. And over the past year, two years in particular, I've had a number of repeat clients coming to me with just extreme anxiety saying, you know, hey, I, I mentioned this on this application form. I realized my address was incorrect for this one period of time. I'm super stressed out about this. Do you think they're going to take my permanent resident status? And they're like really, really worried about this. And I think that it's it's causing a huge amount of anxiety. A lot of people really are trying to do things in the right way, but um, I just feel like it's, it's, it's gone a little bit overboard in, in my view. Yeah. I mean, my concern, like I understand as well, protecting the integrity of the system. Um, and I do think there are, you know, big issues with fraud in certain areas, but that fraud, like the areas that are of the highest concern is the fraud that is the hardest to detect where money might be changing hands overseas in exchange for jobs, where ghost consultants are committing fraud on a large scale overseas yeah. um and then you know even we're certain well i mean those would be the big two or just and we're say you know duties are being fabricated to fit into a certain knock although i'm more sympathetic when i people that one you know phases me a little bit less just because i find the whole knock system odd but definitely yeah. like that's an area that the act is built on and so I understand the need to, um, you know, uphold the integrity of people not fudging duties. Yeah. What I find, though, is that as often seems to be the case in areas of the law, the system focuses on the low hanging fruit that's For easy, sure. which are these like failure to disclose some visa refusal yeah. uh, from a long time ago or to a different country or you know, like in Korea, where the criminal records may say it's illegal to disclose a crime or a record sealed and due to information sharing, Canada knows about it. And it's low hanging fruit to just say, well, we know you didn't disclose this U.S. visa refusal from 10 years ago. Therefore, you committed misrepresentation. And it's not clear to me why that matters. Um, yeah. There is definitely, um, there are different categories here. Um, there are, I, I'm not naive, I know, and, you know, there are cases where people manage to maintain their permanent resident status through what, like, was a deliberate misrepresentation, and now there are children involved, and, you know, there's an effort to try and maintain that status after all of these years. I understand, um, but the problem is that the jurisprudence has been developed with one standard and um, the idea. And again, I think that that was why this whole issue of the innocent mistake um, is quite contentious because um, the, innocent, the innocent mistake, so this was developed, the idea being that there are exceptions to mitigate the very harsh consequence of the mitigate, uh, of the misrepresentation rule where somebody, um, made an innocent mistake, just as, as it says, right? But I think the problem is because all of these types of cases, those who have made a deliberate misrepresentation with the intention of gaining an immigration advantage are being bundled in with those who forgot to mention a visa refusal from 10 years ago that yeah. would have had zero consequence. Um, and none of the, and, you know, the the issue of looking at the gravity of the misrepresentation that only comes to bear on 
on looking at how to treat it if the person has an appeal to the Immigration Appeal Division and they're able to factor in humanitarian and compassionate grounds. But that is very rarely the case uh, where somebody has a right, if somebody has to be a permanent resident already and then they have to be dealing with a potential loss of that permanent resident status. But that never arises where somebody is applying for permanent residency or where someone is being caught in a misrepresentation on a work permit extension or an initial work permit application or um, um, on an like on an initial application for permanent residency. So, um, so, you know, again, maybe we should just this is a segue into what the innocent misrepresentation yeah. before uh, doing that, just as you were talking, it made me think like, what would your thoughts be, you know, off the cuff policy creation on giving officers the discretion of doing a ban of zero to five years and they could pick a number within. Because I think a lot of the frustration, as you mentioned, is all of these are lumped together and it's five years, no matter what the misrepresentation is. And I think that, you know, like we, everyone recognizes that there are different grades of this from the who really cares to very serious but yeah. all of that that meets the legislative definition is five years. So what are your thoughts on, say, empowering officers to have the discretion of picking a number between zero to five? Well, I would go further, Steve, and I would say that from my perspective, it shouldn't be just about looking at the potential for tethering the duration of the ban to the gravity of the misrepresentation, but the consequences overall, like, if you've worked without authorization, you can restore your status if you're applying from within Canada. Yeah. Uh, so the idea that an authorization, like you've theoretically, you've jeopardized the integrity of the immigration system if you've come here as a as a worker and then worked offside the authorization. But still, there's a curative provision that allows you to restore your status and get back get back authorization and then carry on. Um, the fact that there is no curative, ameliorative provision here where you can come out and say, look, uh, you know, and I used to deal with this provision a whole lot when I was dealing with caregivers um, who were coming largely from the Philippines at the time. And because they were coming in as temporary foreign workers, they were coming in as single, like, just as an individual on a work permit. So when they came in, it really wasn't material whether they were married or not married, right? Because they were yeah. just applying for a work permit as an individual. So I had tons of people coming in and saying, hey, I said I was single, but in fact, I'm, I'm married to an abusive spouse. And so we would then make the disclosure. And then we would say, yes, they're actually married, but they wish to separate, but there's no there's no divorce in the Philippines and this is now they wish to get a divorce in Canada. And I did that repeatedly. Okay. Because there was no divorce. And anyways, I could just make it on policy grounds that the misrepresentation was not material um, because, you know, it didn't close down and the, 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 the husband wouldn't have been subject to examination at that time on the work permit application. But now that it's all application for the entire family from overseas, that, that's not possible anymore, you know? And so um, anyways, I'm kind of getting onto my own little train of thought, but all this to say that I just feel like um, I've always had this notion that there's a very sort of Judeo-Christian attitude towards this, like you've lied to us and now yeah. there are consequences and they can't. And I just kind of feel like when people are making these misrepresentations, there's there's generally reasons when it's about a spouse, it's very often because they do not wish to have their spouse, <laughs> you know, and often it's because like there's stigma attached to divorce, they don't think it's an option, you know, like, there's like no divorce available, like whatever the circumstances may be. And so if you can offer an explanation, and they'll be like, yeah, I'm happy with that, you know, the yeah, I mean, that's that where like a zero year ban or like a warning sort of thing. Right? Yes, um, exactly. And I guess, you know, you mentioned before the arc um, and the arc. So an authorization to return to Canada, kind of the issue with that, because uh, Deanna mentioned that, you know, you can't return to Canada during five years without an application for authorization to return to Canada. The first issue first, with that you is uh, you have to be ordered out. You have yeah. to leave. 
Um, so that caregiver, for example, would have to return to the Philippines before they could apply. And then for the ARC, the circumstances have to be compelling enough to return. It's very unpredictable um, ARCs and how just the jurisprudence on them, as well as how the department will view them. Not to mention that right now, like what would they be applying to come back on? You know, like the yeah. caregiver program has basically, the caregiver programs have basically died this slow and painful death. Like I don't, they, they still exist on the books, but they're like almost not at all being processed. So you could apply, you know, like the children, the uh, home child care provider pilot is full, got, gets filled within the first two weeks of each year. Um and then they don't process for, you know, they're still processing applications from 2019. So it's not like, and then if you were to get accepted, then you would need approval of an ARC. Like this is not like a, it is a theoretically possible avenue, but it still doesn't, it doesn't prevent the harm in the first place. Yeah. And they're just slow applications as well. Yeah. So yeah. we... Um, discussed. So why don't we get into, well, why don't we actually, because as you noted in your case, or maybe it was a separate case, that there's also a separate provision that applications can be refused where it doesn't meet the definition of misrepresentation under section 16 of the act. Yeah. Section 16 is a really, it's a sleeper um, in my view. And um, it kind of surprised me when this came up in, in this recent case that I just um, handled before the board, where um, it was a case where there was an allegation of organized criminality, sort of, but they knew they couldn't really make out the organized criminality and they couldn't really make out um anything. So they basically just said that the person had lacked candor in an interview. This was a spousal application. They just hadn't been fulsome in their interview. And that because of that, they had failed, that the, that they, the, the officer was not able to make an admissibility assessment. And I was like, well, that's just not a thing. Um, and, you know, either you make an admissibility allegation or you haven't provided a legitimate basis to refuse the application. Now, after I made those submissions before the Immigration Appeal Division, that's when uh, the department sought to add a new ground of refusal, which was the, the failure to disclose the ETA um, which they said was a misrep. But what was really surprising to me is um, when I did my research for that, there were a whole bunch of cases that had been upheld that there was a legitimate basis for re a refusal on A16 on the basis that the lack of candor by the applicant was sufficient that it prevented the department from being able to make an admissibility assessment. So I don't know what to say about this one here. I was just a little bit gobsmacked by that as a reason. Um, to me, you either need to find the applicant inadmissible um, or ineligible or you're done. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I was pleased to see that the decision maker, um, member Ferrari at the, at the board here in Vancouver said, no, they did not find that the A, but again, um, minister's council, like very strenuously argued that that was a legitimate basis for a refusal, which, um, which surprised me a little bit. Yeah. I've kind of argued like from the other side in judicial reviews where there was a finding of misrepresentation. And I've argued this should have been refused. It doesn't meet the definition of misrepresentation, but if they, it could be refused just either as A16 as a standalone or insufficient evidence to show that they meet program eligibility. So the context would be in a couple cases, work permit applications from India where the department had concerns about whether the job was real so they sent procedural fairness letters to the applicant saying, we have reason to believe you committed misrepresentation in order to show us that the job was real. Please tell your employer to send us copies of their contracts with suppliers, copies of their contracts with customers, their last three uh, financial statements, their tax returns, 
and you know the type of stuff that if you were an employer hiring someone and your prospective employee came and said hey can you give me all this like documentation about your business including your tax filings and uh, you would say no i'm not going to hire you and so those people weren't able to get these documents they were refused under misrep and we successfully judicial reviewed saying look like there, this may meet insufficient evidence if there was a concern on this or they couldn't provide the relevant documents that an officer wanted under A16, but this doesn't rise to the level of misrepresentation. Right. You um, were just trying to avoid the five-year ban, basically. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because the five-year ban, I mean, again, I think it's just, you know, one of those things of the, first of all, I do think it was ridiculous or like it was it's it's unreasonable to expect a work permit applicant to have the company provide these types of documents. Um, yeah. And it all just fits in with that whole, like, is a five-year bar, the one-size-fits-all five-year bar. I don't even think it was a misrepresentation in a case like that. But I do wonder if part of the reason we were successful was just that there is that line of jurisprudence which says, given the consequences of misrepresentation being the five-year bar, it needs to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it is a very strange... Um, to me, the purpose of A16 is to just say, like, you need to provide all the forms and all the documents that are required of you. Um, not that... Um, you know, that if you're answering the questions that are put forward, that it can be used as a way of saying that the quality of your answers was insufficient. I think that there is, to me, I was making a fettering argument with yeah. um, with respect to the board and uh, with respect to the decision that they made and saying that, you know, that it was sort of abdicating responsibility to say that they were not able to make a decision. This was not a situation where he had like failed to appear, like they had a two hour interview with the guy. And if by the end of that interview, they were not able to make a determination, then they just hadn't made out their case. Yeah. Um, but anyways, it, it's a very interesting area. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I realized after when, you know, while I was prepping for this hearing that A16 does get thrown in a whole bunch in, you know, in, in PR refusals, but there's usually also some other admissibility ground. And it, it's usually that admissibility ground that gets a lot of the attention during the hearing itself and not A16 as a standalone ground. Yeah. Um, this was the first time I've had that really um, front, front and center in a, in a hearing. It, it would be interesting if there are other listeners who have dealt with uh, A16 allegations uh, who want to give us feedback about any interesting um, nuances or take they have on this. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to hear from people about it. Yeah. The other area before we get to innocent mistake defense that is kind of similar to this is out of uh, especially for applicants from India, there's been a flurry of open work permit applications, open spousal work permit applications, where the visa office determines that the marriage is not bona fide and automatically lump in a misrepresentation finding as a result, which you don't really see in family class refusals where applications can be refused either because the marriage isn't genuine or because its primary purpose was um, to obtain an immigration benefit. In the family class where Canadians or permanent residents are sponsoring people as their spouses, that's a standalone ground for refusal where the consequence is just the application is refused. Whereas in the open work permit context, it seems like in a lot of cases they're lumping in uh, a misrepresentation finding as well. Yeah, that's something that Raj, uh, Raj Sharma mentioned was sort of, uh, that was becoming kind of a pattern of dealing, uh, a sort of a new trick up the sleeve in the visa offices in India for a period of time. Yeah. Um, do you want to dive in? What is the innocent mistake defense? So uh, there's been 
kind of a flurry of cases and we talked about some of them in in previous I think we talked about the Gill case wasn't it in the in an earlier podcast is that the one that we focused on um in an earlier podcast oh I can't remember okay anyways um but essentially the the principal ended up getting described in one of the earlier one of the enforcement manuals that gets published on the immigration website it's the ENF2 but it talks about the idea that honest errors and misunderstandings sometimes occur and this principle came out of some of the earlier jurisprudence but essentially the the um the the idea behind this it's it's been discussed in a variety of different cases and i think as steve says we can we can provide some of the case citations in our notes um but there are there is a, a divergence in the case law right now one of the one of the case one of the streams seems to be saying that there is a two-step test for establishing whether or not there's a, an innocent rep misrepresentation. The first step would be whether or not the person subjectively believes that they are honestly not making a misrepresentation. And then if that part of the test is satisfied, then you move on to the second component, which is whether or not it was objectively reasonable on the facts that the person believed that they were not making a misrepresentation. So like applying this to the facts of my case, um, that in my case, the question said, um, have you ever been refused a visa? And an ETA was not disclosed. And an ETA is just not a visa. So subjectively, the person honestly believed they were not making a misrepresentation. Um, and then moving on to step two, objectively, was it reasonable? Well, yeah, because a, an ETA is not a visa, they believed that there was no misrepresentation. They weren't asked that question. They were not um, they did not provide that information. And besides the fact that they did disclose the information that, that was necessary. Um, so that's kind of the more, um, the more uh, I would say the more lenient approach to the innocent misrepresentation uh, exemption. The more conservative one is that the misrepresentation was something beyond the applicant's control. Yeah. Um, and, and this is, um, this is reinforced by a number of other cases that go in the other direction. And I think that, um, I don't know if you have any good examples of that, but like, I think maybe one would be, I don't remember the examples in the cases that are cited on this point, but like, let's say, for example, um, you don't know that um, a person you've had a one night stand with has had a child, um, for example. And so when you say that you don't have any children, it's because like, um, I, I don't even know if that would, uh, that might actually still go with the first one, but not with the second one, something beyond your control. Um, I don't know. Do you have any? Um, um, I have a, a case, uh, Spatey v. Canada. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. S-B-A-Y-T-I, Spatey v. Canada, 2019 okay. FC1296. And what that case does is outline what's not a innocent mistake. And so the okay. judge lists a bunch of scenarios of what's not acceptable, which you can kind of then extrapolate what is. So you can't uh, look to correct a misrepresentation. So if someone misstates, IRCC contacts them to say, we believe you misstated. It's not an innocent mistake to say, whoops, uh, I'd like to correct what I did. The second thing that the innocent mistake is not is where someone pleads ignorance. Um, that they didn't know that a reference letter was fake or that they didn't know that their consultant right. lied. Right. Um, saying that you forgot is not uh, part of the innocent mistake defense. Yeah. Although and I think in some even cases the thing about really like not knowing that your consultant lied, like if you signed forms that were blank, that would be imputed to the applicant, certainly. But if it's like, you literally had no way of knowing that they were like, if you did not sign, if they forged your name, 
for example, on yeah. the application forms, um, that would be something different. And you would still need to establish that they had forged your signature, um, but that would be something that that was beyond your control. I think that that's a good example. Yeah. I actually, I think the, uh, on, like, I mean, we say, I say consultant misrep, but it could be lawyer as well or any rep. Yeah. Um, the, that's also, I think the jurisprudence hasn't fully caught up to the online applications because they always talk about signing the application, right? Did the applicant review and sign the application? There's almost mm -hmm. an expectation that they hire their own translator because there's, you know, there's also the, it was your decision to hire the person, the stream of jurisprudence. So if they uh, weren't translating a form properly, that's on the person. Um, but then with the on, so there's a recent case, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll post it in the show notes um, where someone had so the standard is just to before getting into the case what the standard is is as deanna mentioned like did you sign blank forms or did you sign the application did you diligently review the application and there was a recent case where a consultant admitted that after their client signed the application and the client just thought all that was going to happen was the consultant was going to upload and submit the consultant, for some reason, altered the person's university transcripts. Um, not clear why, but the consultant said, look, this is actually what happened. And the judge determined that that is encompassed by the innocent mistake because it occurred after the form was signed. And the person really had no way of knowing that the consultant would do that. It's an extremely unique case, I think, because the consultant you know, acknowledged that they did that. And then uh. it was possible for the applicant to prove. Um, but in the online applications, right, like third party portals, permanent resident portals, you know, the only thing that's signed often is a use of rep. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, the jurisprudence, I don't think has caught up to misrepresentation where the, the all that signed, the only form that's signed is a use of rep. Yeah, and I do, I mean, it's really, it's just challenging because with um, with the way that things are set up now on these portals, it makes it so challenging for an applicant. I mean, one of the, the, the new representative PR portal uh, does provide the visibility, but the express entry portal for sure does not really provide any mean, meaningful way for the applicant to know what was submitted. Um, you know, even for the representative, they can upload a form, but they can't even look at the form that was yep. uploaded to verify what was actually there. Uh, and you know, even when there's litigation around an application that went through the express entry file, um, it can be very contentious because there's no, it, it, it's very hard to see. And, and what happened, what, what gets seen on the department side is quite different from what we see on the user side. So um, it can be quite contentious actually what got uploaded and there's just not that degree of visibility uh, for, uh, for the applicant to be able to to really authorize what was actually submitted, um, so it, it's very to me it's very hard for the department to say that they were reckless in um, in allowing in in authorizing the representative to make submissions on their behalf. Yeah, um, again, there's been like much less jurisprudence on it than I I thought there would be. And then what Spady did find was encompassed by the innocent mistake was in that case, um, it, you know, reading it as it, it's the type of case where you read it and you have to basically probably be a U.S. immigration lawyer to understand what is going on because it involves, you know, the question is, have you ever been refused a visa or permit, denied entry or ordered to leave Canada or any other country or territory? And the person according to that case, failed to maintain F1 non-immigration status in the United States and was given a voluntary departure order. Yeah. And they even had a U.S. immigration lawyer provide an opinion that that doesn't count as yeah. a denial or being ordered to leave. And the Department of Justice argued, well, even if it doesn't technically meet the definition of what's under the form, 
they should have disclosed it <laughs> and they should have known what the spirit of what was being sought wow. was, which the, uh, the judge uh, rejected that argument. Um, well, but again, again, it just goes into like what you were saying with the, yeah. you know, visa versus an ETA, like what is it? Well, but also it depends which version of the innocent mistake test is going to be applied, because if it's whether or not they subjectively believe that they were not making a misrepresentation and whether or not that belief was objectively reasonable, to me, it sounds like they subjectively believe they weren't. And that was objectively reasonable uh, based on the opinion letter from an expert in American immigration law, you know. And so, but again, if it's it was beyond their control, it feels like very little is going to make it through that. Yeah. that sieve. <laughs> and then going so, back to the portal, like beyond their control, um, in the case of those representatives, like what is it insisting on a Zoom upload with your representative to ensure like, is that the standard? Um, anyway, it's still an evolving area. Yeah, it is. And I, I, I really do have some hope. I, I was getting to the point of feeling like the innocent misrepresentation, the innocent misrep exception was kind of dead, I, you know, and there does seem to be a resurgence here. Uh, all that said, there does need to be a continued hypervigilance around issues involving misrepresentation. And I will say what I always say on this subject, which is when in doubt, make a disclosure and provide an explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I am slightly less uh, despairing about the prospects for litigation in this area. I do hope that we continue to expand uh, this area of jurisprudence and hopefully get a little bit more resolution that the the more expansive test is the one that's truly warranted. But I, I, I think you're on the right track though, Steve, about there needing to be a policy answer to this. I know there is the potential for humanitarian and compassionate relief and for TRPs to be issued, but uh, I think it should be something that is much more much more like uh, much more commonplace in the sense of being able to apply for relief in the same way that one would apply for restoration of status so that it can just be done and dusted. Yes, I recognize that this was an issue. Here's the relief I'm seeking. It's done uh, the way that you can for like deemed rehabilitation, for rehabilitation, uh, for, for restoration, you know, and you can, you can get the issue dealt, dealt with definitively and people can move on. Yeah, um, because that's another kind of just the ability of things to, and it's as far as I know, it's unresolved. You may, maybe you know about cases that I don't, but like if someone misrepresents in a TRV application, temporary resident visa application, and in their permanent residence application, they disclose it, and in that application, an officer, you know, it, it's disclosed in the application and an officer ignores it for the most part in the PR application, grants PR. That can still be raised, as far as I know, by the Canada Border Services Agency in the future, if they ever wanted to pursue the permanent resident for misrep is to go back to the TRV. Because even if in the context of the permanent residence application, the TRV misrep was determined to not be consequential, there still was a misrep in a TRV application. And these things can just linger. I feel like I've seen it happen. Um, I'm trying to remember a specific case. Um, but um, I, I can't remember if the case that I'm thinking about was a um, was a misrep or was a criminality determination where um, a port of uh, like a, an initial entry application, they, um, they admitted the person and, you know, 
got gave him a work permit and then ultimately the issue arose again on the application for permanent residency and they kind of disagreed with the determination that had been made at an earlier application which is a, a different question but but ultimately um this was something that i used to get into arguments about with dennis who um who used to own my firm um he thought that you know there's no misrepresentation on the current application and therefore there's no misrepresentation i don't read it that way at all um you know i think that the misrepresentation is out there and it can be raised at any time um and i believe that that perspective has been is supported you know um it you know in in my read of the jurisprudence and you know like if they they got a benefit from that I, I still feel like it's it's out there um in the world so um so yeah I, I I do think it's a danger yeah it um I don't know I do think there needs to like I, I think there needs to be a policy decision for sure I don't think individual judges creating in a judicial review their own tests for what the innocent mistake defense to misrepresentation is um, when the underlying issue is that this all becomes much less contentious if there's not basically the equivalent of a mandatory minimum in the yeah. criminal law um, where there's banishment for yeah. five years. Yeah, and I think that um, one final point that I wanted to make, which is that you know, the, the ban is a five-year ban, but the consequences tend to last a lot longer than that, um, particularly for nationals from certain countries. Um, I've been working with a family for, um, for quite some time right now where the applicant was, he was found inadmissible for misrep for having failed to disclose a U.S. visitor visa refusal on his Canadian TRV application, right? He served out the five-year ban um, and then applied again, and they refused him as an overstay risk. And we've JR'd and they settled and it went back and they refused as an overstay risk. And so, you know, and it's just this merry-go-round of refusals. And like, there's like, you know, I do a lot of visa office refusals. There's no reason to be refusing this person. He has like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of assets he's traveled to like literally every country in the world like you name it he's been there um he's traveled to canada repeatedly he has family members in both countries like he yeah. has like no ability to stay for more than a couple of weeks like it's just like it's a picture perfect trv application yeah. um, the rich person know, right the per perfect picture perfect rich person <laughs> rich person with like yeah business like and like and we provided affidavit evidence he's like I literally cannot stay for more than 10 days I've got like business needs but I have family in Canada I want to be there for the birth of my first nephew you know like and then I need to go back you know I would never be able to achieve the same standard of living in Canada I have no interest in remaining beyond this period of time and now like you know you you lose, you, you do a JR, you get a settlement, you go, and it's just sort of like, so um, the idea of it being a five-year ban, I just kind of want to shake the tree on that a little bit, because like, unless you're prepared to do uh, this merry-go-round of JRs, you know, like, uh, you're going to have a hard time. It's not like just at the end of the ban, you just put one in and they just accept yeah. it. No, that that's true for sure. The irony is they approved his wife who has none of those same things, but didn't have the, and I don't know if there's a, a yeah, I mean, it tends to suggest this, that it is like, the, uh, the five-year ban lingering for sure, forever. For sure. A hundred percent. But, uh, you know, um, the amount of energy that's gone into trying to get this set right is like, and I wonder too whether or not because now we're going seven years back that that um, that the initial refusal and it was litigated at that time and they did not think that the innocent misrep um, exception applied under the circumstances even though um, you know anyway so it's it's a uh, it's it's still a bit of a sad story but uh, yeah. I think that we're hopefully making some headway uh, and I think that I really just encourage people to not let these 
uh, these decisions lie, because I feel like this is a good time to keep putting good cases forward through the courts, because I think we are making some progress in, in those decisions. Yeah, no, and I'm, I mean, I, like I've, I've said before, I think it has to be done at the policy or political mm -hmm. level. I think it's a difficult difficult to sell politically. It's like how you always need the courts to strike down a mandatory minimum sentence before uh, the politicians will, because yeah, light on immigration fraud, quote unquote, is going to be a difficult, uh, a difficult one to sell, certainly through parliament, um, but also just through policy or because um, that's the thing, the five years is in the act. So if they are going to introduce a sliding scale, presumably they'll either have to amend the or broaden the scope of public policy to basically change that from a sliding scale or change that from five years to a sliding scale yeah. or amend the act. Yeah, I mean, it just takes a little bit of creativity because there's a there's a long stretch of space between a light on immigration fraud and just not punishing people who have just made really innocent mistakes. And yeah. with the complexity of the process, it's incredibly easy to leave off reference to something really just silly um, and then to bear consequences that are really pretty shocking for maybe forever. Um, we'll see how I how I do with my JR coming <laughs> up. But, um, but yeah, the, the, the consequences are pretty serious. Yeah. Otherwise, we know it. Uh, we at least have one episode topic each year because this issue only gets more and more jurisprudence. And more I know and more complicated. it's true. It's really true. That's that's 100 percent right. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, yeah, we will have to carry this on for possibly another day. I just feel like they're catching more and more clients on that question than ever before. Have you ever been refused any visa? Um, to, to Canada or any other country. And particularly since this case that I just that I just worked on um, recently, where the board made a determination that failure to disclose an ETA was was determined to be a misrepresentation. Even and it was, they said that because like on the Schedule A form in the context of a spousal, they were asked, have you ever been refused a visa? to Canada or any other country. And he said, yes, I was denied entry on two different occasions. And he described the two port of entry refusals that he had had, but he didn't describe the refusal of the ETA. And so when we were at the board, we explained like an ETA is not a visa. And besides all of the underlying facts were before the officer because like he described the work permit, like the refusals of admission, but not the refused ETA. Um, I hadn't done the initial application, but in any event, these were my submissions at the IAD. And the board ultimately found that the failure to disclose the ETA was a misrepresentation, even though we made arguments on materiality and even though, you know, like it's not a visa, still they found, they, they ended up allowing the appeal on agency grounds, but still like um, to go to your question, like, no, I don't think I've ever had it come up on one of my files, but I do like, this was a very chilling case for me where I feel like, um, it's not enough for me to just send the questionnaire and take it at face value when my client says, no, they've never had a, a visa refusal. I feel like I need to like ask that question voice to voice with every single client. Before yeah, no, I it's something same forms. where we do email after email right before submission saying, I just want to confirm again, you have never had a refusal to any country anywhere because it seems to be the trend um, in terms of misrepresentation findings. Mm -hmm. And this is something you and I've been talking about, like for for quite some time, is that while the courts seem to be going more in one direction, the actual decision makers at the visa offices and even at the inland offices seem to be going very much in the other direction. Um, yeah, well, I think even at the federal court now, there's a bit of a divergence in mm. jurisprudence a bit. There's just more and more cases, it seems, of people who it's not even clear if it counts as a refusal or if it needed to be put in the forms. 
yet this seems to be the area where they're really coming down on people. I will have to look up the case name or post it in the show notes, but there was a recent decision by Madam Justice Go, where she found it unreasonable that IRCC found someone inadmissible for misrepresentation when they disclosed two Canadian visa refusals that were like 15 years old, but did not disclose one that was 30 years old that they basically forgot about. And I don't know why the department is so fixated on this as the area to catch people. Mm -hmm. Well, with the Canadian refusals, I find it really quite challenging because um, well, I mean, first of all, whenever you're dealing with a misrepresentation allegation, uh, to me, there's a requirement to show not only that there was a fact that was omitted, but also that the misrepresentation is material, that it could have um, closed down um, an area of investigation. And when, you know, when it's a when it's a failure to provide information about a previous Canadian uh, visa refusal, you know, I do have some trouble understanding how that could be closing down an area of investigation, um, especially when they're also asked all sorts of information about previous convictions, about medical conditions, about, you know, um, you know, um, about, you know, all the other underlying causes of admissibility, like in terms of Mm -hmm. war crimes, in terms of all that sort of thing. So the actual refusal of the visa in itself, to me, doesn't, um, doesn't disclose, like if it's just that, um, that Canada felt, for example, that somebody was an overstay risk, in the past, that doesn't necessarily foreclose any further avenue of investigation. Like that was fact-driven at the time. If it was a 10-year-old visa refusal, that's the most common reason for refusal that they thought um, that might have been the case. So, so again, and also the fact that that was a determination that was made by Canada, that Canada would have had that information in their possession, um, that you're not sharing back to Canada the information that they would presumably have, um, assuming that they hadn't purged their own records. Again, I find that very challenging as to how it can be a material misrepresentation um, in these in these circumstances. Yep, I can give an example, like specifically on the failure to disclose a previous uh, refusal and misrepresentation to show just how strict this is, and then maybe we'll backstep and um, go into just the the legislation on what a misrepresentation is Mm. for those new to the area. But in the case, this was a judicial review that I lost uh, last year uh, before Madam Justice Pelota. And the facts in that case were the individual was in Canada on visitor status. He was a provincial nominee. He drives to the United States and comes back and the CBSA and he, he submits some sort like coming back in. He applies for something. It was never fully clear throughout what had actually gone on at the border. Um, but basically at the border, it's determined that he had been working without authorization. And so they don't issue him an exclusion order or anything, but they allow him to leave. And he then goes to apply for his work permit from outside of Canada. He's from India. So on the work permit questions, the work permit application questions, they ask him, have you ever remained beyond the validity of your status, extended school without authorization or worked without authorization in Canada? No. Have you ever been refused a visa or permit denied entry Order to leave Canada or any other country or territory? Yes. Have you ever previously applied to enter or remain in Canada? Yes. Please provide details. And he wrote, work permit application was refused. So the misrepresentation there, uh, the misstatement, was that he checked no to whether he had ever remained beyond the validity of his status or worked. Basically, the, the misrep was when he clicked no to the, whether he had ever worked without authorization. Um, and in the judicial review, uh, what we argued was kind of what you were saying was that was 
unreasonable because he had disclosed the work. He had disclosed the fact that he had had an application refused and that that application was refused because of the unauthorized work. So he said, well, even if there was a misstatement, it's not clear how that misstatement could have impacted the process because it was inevitable that he that IRCC would catch this because once they saw the previous work permit refusal, they would see that there were allegations that he had worked without authorization. And ultimately, we were unsuccessful. And Madam Justice Pelota's reasoning uh, was twofold. First, I think it bugged her that he kind of dug in on whether he had ever worked without authorization. And so in the response to the procedural fairness letter that he received, uh, kind of, you know, followed and continued with the misrep rather than doing what you often see, which was, whoops, my bad, my mistake. I checked the box wrong. But then also that um, the word that she used or the term that she used was breadcrumbs. You can't, it's not reasonable for applicants to provide breadcrumbs to officers that may lead them to relevant information.